0: Well, friends, uh, as Jeff said, my name is Matt Acton. I have the privilege of serving Covenant Baptist as a pastoral assistant. By way of quick announcement, uh, the bathrooms are both currently out of order. So if you or your children uh, need to use the restroom, unfortunately, both of ours are out of service. We've been, uh, we share this space with another church, and this has been an issue we've been dealing with for some time now. So I very much apologize for the inconvenience. But uh, let's now turn and consider God's word together. How do you know when someone really cares about you? My parents, Mark and Valerie, are getting ready to celebrate their 35th wedding anniversary this summer. And one of my favorite stories about their early dating relationship was my dad learning how to express his love to my mother in a way that she understood and was reassured by. He'd been raised in a family where gift-giving was the primary means of expressing one's love for another. If you wanted to communicate to someone how special they were to you, you did so through tangible tokens of their affection. My mother, on the other hand, was not raised in a family like that. She was raised in the country of Canyon, Texas for most of her upbringing. So her tastes were perhaps a little bit simpler than what my dad had expected. So when they started dating, my father, eager to communicate to my mother his love would buy her what every woman, or so he thought, wanted, expensive jewelry. And as a broke college student, he had to work hard enough so that he could afford to do so, which meant that a lot of his time outside of class was spent earning his next paycheck. And this went on for some months until my mother finally had to tell him, Mark, I don't want a necklace. I don't want earrings. I just want to be with you. Talk about an epiphany for my father. He'd spent all this time showering my mom with all these different material gifts, but he had neglected the one gift that she was actually after the gift of his presence. She just wanted to be with him. What about you? Have you ever related? to that? It's remarkably easy to underestimate the importance of presence, isn't it? We often don't fully appreciate it until we don't have it anymore, do we? We often take for granted the ability to simply be with those that we love and cherish the most. Then when someone moves away or the kids move out of the house or a loved one passes, we dearly miss their presence, don't we? What wouldn't we give to be with them again? Or consider what we just went through in the, in the pandemic and the ways that it affected churches, whether you were here at CBC or gathering with another church at the time. Praise God for the technology that we had to be able to live stream a sermon for a few weeks. But watching a sermon is a far stretch from actually gathering together as a church as embodied beings, isn't it? the reason why the elders here at CBC have chosen not to provide a publicly accessible live stream link long term is because they want you to miss this when you're not here. They want you to yearn and long for the gathering of the saints. They don't want you to fool yourself into thinking that watching a sermon on a screen is an adequate substitute for the real thing of being here around God's word together. Presence is a powerful thing. And yet it is so easy to take for granted. It is so easy to neglect. Over these next two weeks, we're gonna take a look at the book of Haggai, where we will see the value that our creator likewise places upon his presence among his people. We will see that throughout redemptive history, God has made it clear that he is not some distant deity. He is not some absent clockmaker who created the world and then lets us figure things out on their own. No, the God of the Bible is a deeply relational being. And my aim over these next two weeks is to persuade you that God is serious about his dwelling place among his people. He wants us to be serious about it as well. God wants his people to care for his household. And that is the overarching theme that we will see in these two, over our, uh, two chapters. Is that God wants his people to care for his household. First, we need to get a brief picture at where we are in the biblical storyline. We can't just parachute in like we might do with our favorite television series. We need to understand where we are in the history of the Bible. The prophetic ministry of Haggai, as well as Zechariah and Malachi, came after the Jewish community's 70-year exile in Babylon. Nearly every prophet before them preached of the coming of God's judgment should the people remain obstinate and unrepentant. And sure enough, the people persisted in their sin. And the Lord, true to his word, raised up the Babylonians, who took Jerusalem, destroyed God's temple, and burned the city down. First Chronicles 9.1 says that Judah was carried away into exile to Babylon for their unfaithfulness. In one of their darkest moments, they remained in Babylonian captivity for nearly 70 years. And then, in 539 BC, the Lord likewise raised up Cyrus the Great of Persia, who turned around and captured Babylon. And shortly thereafter, allowed and even encouraged the Jews to return to the land of their inheritance. And a descendant of David and an ancestor of Jesus named Zerubbabel then served as Judah's governor and led them on a journey back to Jerusalem to reclaim what they had lost. Things were looking up for the Jews, right? Not only had they been liberated from captivity, but Cyrus had subsidized the road trip. They had Zerubbabel leading the way and they could finally rebuild the temple of God. What could go wrong, right? Well, as we'll see in our passage today, it is a lot easier than we often think for God's people to lose their focus on what really matters, especially in the face of opposition. Self-absorption and spiritual apathy were just as prevalent for Judah back then as they are for us today. We read in Ezra three and four that they started to rebuild and he'd even laid a foundation and yet it didn't take long for the surrounding nations to get when that they were back and make plans to stop them. Due to the pressure and opposition from other nations, the rebuild campaign was stopped as quickly as it had started. The ruined temple continued to lay where it had fallen. Fast forward 18 years after the people had returned to Jerusalem. The temple was still in ruins. It is at this point that our prophet Haggai enters the scene. And the question that Haggai's audience must have been asking themselves, as well as what we should be asking ourselves at this point, is Will God still dwell with his people? Will God still dwell with his people? Or is God's presence among his people a thing of the past? Are God's people too far gone? So read with me as we take a look at Haggai's ministry to the people of Judah. We will read from verse 1 in Haggai all the way down to the end of the chapter. Haggai is the third to the last book of the Old Testament. So if you can find Matthew, just turn a couple of pages to the left. If you're using one of the black hardback copies of God's Word, you can find it on page 791. And if you don't have a Bible at home, that book is our gift to you. You can take it home with you. We'd love for you to have it. So, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehosadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. Well, each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people, and with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You can be seated. We know very little about the prophet Haggai himself outside of the four months of ministry that we see in this book. He's only mentioned here and briefly in the book of Ezra, and he is speaking to a generation that had been without a temple for nearly 70 years. Therefore, as we've said, the question that naturally arises from this book is, will God still dwell with his people? Remember that under the old covenant, the uh, the temple served as a sign that God was among his people, that he dwelt among them in their midst. But why was the temple necessary? The temple and the, the tabernacle before it were needed because once sin entered the cosmos... In Genesis 3, mankind was cast out of the first temple of God's dwelling, the Garden of Eden. Because of their rebellion against God, man could not remain in the presence of a holy God. God's own holiness necessitates purity. He cannot dwell in fellowship with that which does not share his holiness. Therefore, the temple mediated the presence of God in Jerusalem among his people. And as they came and made atonement for sins through the sacrificial system. And for roughly 15 years, there had been no progress, no effort made in its rebuilding. This is the situation that Haggai steps into. And in chapter 1, we see one central idea. Consider how God's people are to care for God's household. That is the main point of this sermon. Consider how God's people are to care for God's household. And we see this fleshed out in two primary moves, which will serve as the structure of our sermon today. Consider your ways, verses 1 through 11, and care for God's household, in 12 through 15. Consider your ways and care for God's household. Two points, super simple. Let's look at the first. Consider your ways. If you're taking notes and you'd like the subpoints in verses 1 through 6, we see God's household neglected, and in 7 through 11, we see God's people corrected. God's household neglected, God's people corrected. Immediately in verse 1, we're given the precise day of Haggai's introductory sermon. In the 2nd year of Darius the king, in the 6th month on the 1st day of the month. He's very specific. He intentionally locates his ministry within the reign of King Darius, which puts his sermon, his first sermon, on August 29th, 520 BC. If you've ever heard or maybe even believed yourself that the Bible is historical or mere fiction, uh, we see a clear example here that the biblical authors simply don't allow such accusations to hold any credibility. They intentionally root the Bible in history. About 43% of the Bible is historical narrative. It tells us of things that really, actually happened. Haggai speaks first to the governor, Zerubbabel, and to the high priest, Joshua, delivering a message from the Lord of hosts. This title, Lord of hosts, occurs 14 times in the book of Haggai. The hosts is a reference to the army of angels that is in heaven that the Lord commands, and so the designation Lord of hosts emphasizes Yahweh's power as king, And in this case, it underscores why his audience should take care to listen to what he has to say. He says to the leaders of Judah, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Note the tone here. The Lord doesn't address them as my people, here as he does elsewhere. He simply says these people. There is a tone of relational distance throughout these first 11 verses due to the unfaithfulness of the people. The people of Jerusalem carried a posture that didn't deny this necessity of rebuilding the temple. The statement assumes that the temple was to be rebuilt, but it questions the timing, not now. Some commentators see more pious motives of the people, perhaps waiting on the Davidic king to build the temple, according to Ezekiel 37, or perhaps waiting for the full 70 years to come to an end, according to Jeremiah 25. But what follows in chapter one characterizes the people's attitude as lazy, apathetic, and self-focused. As one pastor often jokes, church people were very different back then than they are now today. As we often do, the people reinterpreted God's will based upon their experience. They were subjected to opposition in their efforts to rebuild over a decade and a half before, and therefore, they changed their theology. Surely, if God really wanted us to rebuild, then he would have removed the obstacles that were preventing us from doing so. They, in a sense, said, well, God must not want us to do this if it's going to be this difficult. Listen to what Michael Barrett writes in reflection upon this passage. He says, A common and comfortable resolution when experience clashes with creed, that is what we believe, is to tweak the creed and to make it consistent with our experience. Redefining doctrine to make it correspond to experience makes it easier to believe. If it was really time to rebuild, there would be no opposition or struggle. There was opposition, so it was not the time after all." End quote. Judah had a creed. They believed that the temple needed to be rebuilt in order to restore God's dwelling among his people. And yet, they allowed their experience to dictate their creed. They allowed their experience to have authority over their creed. And how often do we see the same error in our own lives? We all think that we have perfect doctrine until something comes along that appears to contradict it, right? We're all guilty of it. We all champion God's providence, right? When things are going pretty good, what about when those bitter providences come along? It can be tempting to doubt from time to time, isn't it? Would a good God really have allowed that? What about when ethical gray areas come at, at work or in school? Yeah, I, I know God has said not to, not to lie, but he wouldn't really mind me just bending the truth a little bit in my annual review. I know God has said not to cheat, but he wouldn't really care about this dumb online class that I'm taking at school, right? Friends, we're not immune to that kind of corrosive moral reasoning. I can tell you from many personal conversations over the past several years with professed Christians who, who struggle with same-sex attraction that this is the question that many of them wrestle with. What do I do when my experience seems to contradict that which I believe to be true about God and his word? Let me say that again. What do I do when my experience seems to contradict that which I believe to be true about God and his word? Friends, how unloving would it be for us to try to alter what God has revealed? To shrink back from those hard conversations and not speak the truth in love. To try to reinterpret the word in a way that better caters to the felt needs and desires of our generation in the name of, of, of being winsome. To try to justify the very sins that Christ died for. That is spiritually abusive. It's no small thing to change our doctrine based upon what is easier on our lives or more convenient from the culture. We need to guard ourselves and one another from this kind of doctrinal duplicity that allows experience more authority than doctrine. What God has revealed to us in the word is for his glory and for our good. So we've seen in Haggai Haggai addressed the issue head on with Judah's leaders. Now in verse 3, he turns to the people themselves. And he by no means takes it easy on them. Haggai's righteous outrage is funneled into the form of rebuke, a correction. And it's structured in in kind of a sandwich. Here we go. The rebuke is seen in verses 5 and 6 and in 9 through 10, which are like the pieces of bread. In the center where the meat goes is verse eight, where we see the imperative given and the purpose provided. But first, let's consider the rebuke or the bread. In verses four, he asks rhetorically, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Their attention, their focus, their priorities had shifted from the rebuilding of the temple to their own personal comfort and survival. They seem to be consumed with personal concerns rather than spiritual concerns. In light of the Apostle Paul's teachings in Colossians 3.2, you might say that they had, their, uh, they had set their minds on earthly things rather than the things that are above. Therefore, the Lord aims for the heart. He essentially responds to their argument about it not yet being the time to rebuild by saying, well, you've taken care of your own homes. Why not mine? You've squared away your own dwelling place. What about mine? dwelling place. He points to their own houses as an indictment against their priority of self. They claim to care about God's temple, and yet, as is universally true, their actions were indicative of their priorities. You can tell me what's really important to you, but your priorities will always manifest themselves in your actions. One commentator points out an ironic reversal here compared to 2 Samuel 7, right, near the Davidic covenant. He says, when David was in his cedar house and wanted to build the temple, the prophet Nathan told him to delay. Hold up. Now the people are in their paneled houses and they want to delay, but the prophet Haggai tells them it's time to build the temple. The one who wanted to build the temple was told that he couldn't, and the ones who didn't want to build the temple were told that they must. We must always be willing to conform our wills in accordance with God's will. In verse five, he tells them, consider your ways. He wants them to consider their circumstances, their way of life. Verse six, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He highlights three basic essentials of life, food, drink, and clothing. While some understand the prophet here to be pointing to a kind of agricultural recession or hardship that they were experiencing, his emphasis is not on the complete lack of these things. His emphasis is on the people's dissatisfaction or the lack of fulfillment in their quantity. They had food, drink, clothes, and gainful employment. And yet, the harvest fell short of their expectations. They weren't starving, but they weren't satisfied. They weren't thirsty, but they weren't quenched. They had clothes, but they weren't comfortable. They had money, but it never seemed to stretch far enough. Despite the possession of these material goods, the good life evaded them. Do you relate to that? Do you hear echoes of Ecclesiastes here? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. The prophet directly relates their material dissatisfaction to the refusal to rebuild God's temple. You want to know why you find yourself in your current state of affairs, the Lord says? Look at verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord, because of my house that lies in ruins. Well, each of you busies himself with his own house. That's about as clear as he can make it, isn't it? There's no ambiguity about where the blame is located. He says, look around you. Now look at my house on the ground. That's why. It continues in verses 10 through 11 that their disobedience to his command has prompted God's judgment through a drought. They withheld rebuilding the temple. Therefore, he withheld the rain and the earth withheld its produce. The reason why the harvest missed their expectations is because they were under God's judgment. Perhaps this seems harsh to you for what you might consider innocent procrastination at best, but consider what One commentator, Alec Motyer, writes in his commentary, he says to refuse to build the house was at best saying that it didn't matter whether the Lord was present with them. At best, that's what they're saying. At worst, it was presuming on divine grace that the Lord would live with his people even though they willfully refused to fulfill the condition that he had laid of his indwelling that he had laid down. It amounted to seeking grace, but refusing the means of grace. Not to build a house was not to want the Lord as and for himself, end quote. Whichever way you look at it, the defense for the people doesn't doesn't hold up. They either thought that the Lord's presence among them was a matter of indifference, or they thought that they could have the Lord's presence on their own terms, Friends, we we come before the Lord on, on His conditions, not ours. If the book of Leviticus makes anything clear to us, it is that God cares very much, not merely that we worship Him, but He cares how we worship Him. He's provided us with ample clarity in His Word about how we are to approach Him in corporate worship. That's why in our gatherings, you'll notice that we don't really try to do anything fancy. We simply seek to obey that which God has given explicit precedence for in his word. We read the word, we sing the word, we pray the word, we preach the word, and we see the word in baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are just the ordinary means of God's grace. So if you find yourself spiritually struggling and you want to grow, if that's you, you're spiritually struggling and you want to grow, first question you should always ask yourself is how have I made use of the ordinary means of God's grace? As Haggai reveals to us, we come to God on his terms, not ours. The Lord may, in his wisdom, from time to time, choose to work through mysterious or uncommon means of grace to grow us. However, that should not change our commitment to seek him through the ordinary means that he has given us in his word. So we see the Lord's correction in the, the pieces of bread, as I mentioned. And then in verse eight, we see the center, the Lord's instruction. He says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. God wants his people to repent. He wants them to take their attention off of themselves and devoted to restoring God's household. Plain and simple. It wasn't too much preparatory work to complete either. There was plenty of stone left from the first temple and we know from Ezra 3:7 that the timber for the restoration had already been imported. Now the only remaining supplies could be found in Judah's wooded hills, not too far away. Notice that the focus here isn't on the temple's grandeur or magnificence, but its existence. It was never merely about the physical building itself. It was about God dwelling among his people again. He wants the surrounding nations to know that he is there with his people. And rebuilding the temple would bring pleasure to God and glorify him. Those are the motives that God provides to the people for the rebuilding of his temple. So what are God's people to do when they've been confronted by the word of God? when they've been found out, corrected, for a failure to live as God has commanded. This leads us to our next point in verses 12 through 15. The main point is care for God's household. Care for God's household. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Friends, this is a textbook example of what the Bible calls repentance. If if you're a visitor here with us today, and that's not a word that you're familiar with, this is what repentance looks like. Repentance is a turning away from sin, and a submitting in obedience to the Lord. As we read from our church's confession of faith earlier we believe that repentance and faith are the right and required response of sinners to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you're wondering, how do I respond to the gospel? It's right there. We repent and we have faith. And our statement says they are inseparable acts of turning away from sin and turning to God through Christ alone for salvation. That is what it looks like to respond to God's word. So if you're visiting with us today and you're wondering how one becomes a Christian, it is through faith in Christ's person and finished work for salvation and repentance from sin unto God. That is how unholy sinners are reconciled to a holy God. Faith and repentance are tw- twin graces in that sense. They cannot be separated from each other. And here in Haggai, we see a healthy example of what a right response to God's word looks like. God spoke, the people listened. So if you're interested in learning more about what that might look like for you, come talk to me or one of the elders after service. We would love to speak with you for as long as you'd like. Haggai tells us that the people feared the Lord. It is a good thing for unholy sinners to feel guilty before our God when we're convicted of sin, of disobedience to his word. We should cultivate a holy, and, uh, holy reverence and fear of the Lord. A lack of fear before the Lord is perhaps evidence of pride and a failure to examine ourselves before his word. God's people fear the Lord. Following their repentance, Haggai speaks again on behalf of the Lord in verse 13, declaring, I am with you. In light of the people's right response of repentance, the Lord assures them of what he was really after in the first place that he would be with his people. Their repentance is evidence that they realize their neglect of God's presence. Consider how sweet these words must have been for a people that God had just demonstrated his judgment upon through the drought on their crops. Surely they must have felt as if God was against them. They were in judgment. And yet, how kind is the Lord to respond to them in grace by assuring them of his dwelling among them. Not only that, but in verse 14, how the Lord stirs up or energizes the spirit of the people in their work. The pattern we see is that the Lord speaks, the people obey, and the Lord honors their response. He gives even greater grace by further motivating and enlivening and spurring on their work. Note the uh, tone change here from what we saw earlier in verse 2, where the Lord referred to them as these people. Now in verse 14, we're told that they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. The relational gap had been closed as the people prioritized the presence of God among them. God's word bore fruit in their lives. And as a result, the temple was on its way. Well, I'm fairly confident that no one here is guilty of refusing to rebuild a sixth century BC Jewish temple If you think you might be, I'd love to speak with you. That sounds really interesting. Um, I need to hear more about that. But for those of us that aren't, how does this apply for us today? To understand how this matters for us today, we need to do some whole Bible theology concerning the temple's place in redemptive history. As we continue reading our Bibles, we see that the second temple in Jerusalem was not God's final plan for his dwelling among his people, was it? No, the first and second temples were merely types, shadows, pointing forward to a greater future temple. Turn with me to a familiar text to many of us in John 1:14. John 1:14. John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God's ultimate plan for establishing his presence among his people wasn't through a place, but a person. He appointed his only son, Jesus Christ, to become a man and dwell among us. Turn one page to the right to chapter 2, verse 18. John two eighteen. Jesus kicks the money changers out of the temple in Jerusalem, and the Jews asked him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them. Verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, they, they didn't quite get what he was saying, did they? Their minds were still focused on that physical temple, They said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. Okay. And John clues clues us, us in his audience to what Jesus was saying in verse 21. It says, but he was speaking about the temple of what? His body. The temple in Jerusalem was merely pointing forward. It was a coming soon sign. And John even continues that, later after Christ's death and resurrection, that the disciples were reminded of this moment. It wasn't until then that they got it. Jesus is the true and greater temple. Turn one more place with me. This is just too good not to share. One more place. Look with me at 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. Turn right if you were in John. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Under the new covenant, God's people no longer worship in a physical temple. The old covenant has been done away with and the old old temple with it has been made obsolete. Christ himself is the true temple, the cornerstone rejected by men. And he now dwells with his people by his spirit. Remember, that was the promise in Ezekiel 36, wasn't it? That he would put his spirit within us. And now, the people of God themselves are the living stones that make up God's household on earth. His presence dwells within us by his spirit. God's household has been transformed from a physical place to a spiritual people, a holy priesthood. And those spiritual people are gathered together into the body of the local church. So in light of this reality, how do we, Covenant Baptist Church, in 2023, Apply Haggai 1 to our lives. We care for God's household, the church. We do not neglect the body. Now, what I'm not saying is that today is the start of CBC's building campaign, so you can relax, just heads up. That's not what I'm saying. Buildings are a great blessing from God, and I hope that the Lord is kind to give CBC its own building one day, Lord willing. But the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple as the means by which God's presence would be mediated to Judah just doesn't have anything to do with a church building campaign today. We care for God's household by fulfilling the one another ministry that we've committed to in our church covenant. I would encourage you, if you if you haven't already, to make meditating on our church covenant a weekly or biweekly practice for you and your family. Consider your ways. Have you, have you been faithful to the covenant that you've made of the people around you? In what ways have you maybe, maybe not been as faithful as you could be? Why not, do, why not do this tonight before bed? As you're putting the kids down, have an honest family discussion about the ways in which you could better seek to care for God's household. I'm confident it'd be edifying to you and, and a witness to your children about what faithful church membership looks like. Show them that you take it seriously about what it means to care for God's household. That's a a general application, but more specifically, we care for God's household by being present at our corporate gathering week in and week out, barring unforeseen providences that would hinder you from being here, of course. Consider trying to be here in this room 15 minutes before service starts so that you can do intentional spiritual good to your brothers and sisters. This doesn't mean that certain circumstances won't ever come up that prevent you from being here on time. But if more often than not, you're consistently absent for the call to worship and the first song or two, it could, hear me, could be an indicator of of a deeper priority issue. Just think on that this week as you examine your own family's habits and tendencies around the corporate gathering. Let me tell you, it it is such an encouragement to look around as our services begin and see God's people ready and eager to worship him together. So encouraging. You could even pray on the drive to church. Lord, would you, would you give me an opportunity to serve or encourage someone this week, today? Would you help me build up your body this afternoon? That's the mentality that we should have as we pull into the parking lot. We get to feed on Christ in his word, and we get to build up the body What a privilege. Another way that we care for God's household is by personally investing ourselves in the regular discipling ministry of the church. Friends, we we should aspire for it to be abnormal that any one of our members not be involved in some kind of personal discipling relationship. We should aspire for it to be abnormal that they're not involved in a discipling relationship. What if that were true of us? You often heard from heard it said from the pulpit here, as Jeff just did this morning or this afternoon, every disciple discipling and no undiscipled disciples. What would it look like if each of us, every single one of us, took ownership of that vision? If we made it our aim that every branch is tended to, and that none are spiritually neglected. Is that something you give given much thought to? What members have have you not seen at church in a while? Have you reached out to them? According to Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 1, the burden falls on the congregation to make declarations on behalf of heaven through the exercise of the keys of the kingdom. That responsibility belongs to the church, the body. It is very possible for God's household, to, for God's people to neglect God's household by failing to speak on behalf of heaven concerning Members in unrepentant sin. We need to consider how we as members of the church are to pursue those sheep that are prone to wander, not merely the elders. And we, the church, are called to remove from among us those that we can no longer affirm a credible profession of faith. That is a weighty calling, church. We cannot neglect caring for God's household in this way. I would encourage you, reflect upon your own involvement in the discipling ministry of our church. If someone was to ask you, hey, who are you intentionally doing spiritual good to? I pray that we would each be able to easily give specific names and specific answers. Friends, we could spend all day giving greater thought to the various ways in which we're called to care for God's household, the church. We could consider our stewardship and our financial support towards the church's material needs. We could consider the ways in which we serve the body through hospitality or a kids ministry, you name it. The practical applications of ways that we care for God's household really are endless. This week, consider how the Lord might have you walk in increased faithfulness to this command. Well, friends, on Wednesday morning, March 22nd, in 1916, in East Nashville, Tennessee, a little boy was playing with a ball of yarn when it suddenly ignited from a nearby stove. As you can imagine, the boy threw it out the window into their yard, which caused the grass to catch fire. As fires always do, it started out small, but with the help of 50-mile-an-hour wind, it quickly started to consume everything in its path. Before they knew it, the fire grew, and it absolutely devastated the city. The fire's path, all told, was about three blocks wide and two miles long. Roughly 650 buildings were burned to the ground. 3,000 people in Nashville's most affluent neighborhood became homeless that day. What immediately stands out, if you look at the pictures of the, uh, following the fire, is that in the background, you see two buildings standing right next to the ashes of everything else. These two buildings belong to the Baptist Church and the Methodist Church in the heart of East Nashville, while the fire was raging, rather than seeking to preserve their own homes, the people gathered and did what they could to protect the church buildings. And as a result, many people lost their homes. But those two churches are still standing today. Brothers and sisters, what would it look like for our priorities to be so evidently displayed in our care for God's household? Not in the physical building, obviously, but in our care for the members that comprise God's household? Are we as committed to the building up, protecting, and preserving of God's spiritual household as these saints were about preserving the space in which they gathered? This kind of care flows from our own recognition of the undeserved grace that God has shown us in Christ. We want to be a people that never gets over our salvation. One of the most impactful Christian books that I've ever read is The Compelling Community Where God's Power Makes a Church Attractive by Jamie Dunlop and Mark Dever. If there's only one book that I could give any one of you relating to the Christian life in the local church, this would be it. Compelling Community Where God's Power Makes a Church Attractive Mark, Jamie Dunlop and Mark Dever. This is it. Listen to what they write in Compelling Community. Every day of our congregation's lives. We want them to stare in amazement at what God has chosen to do through the gospel. When they treasure salvation as undeserved grace, they will take seriously their responsibility to guard one another from sin. When they treasure salvation as undeserved grace, they will celebrate God's power to transform sin-ridden hearts. The more amazed that we are at our salvation, the more we will foster a culture of honest, grace-filled conversation about sin. Friends, may the Lord be pleased by his grace to make us a people that diligently seeks to care for his household. Let's pray.